Welcome to the Stolen Reality Podcast. This is where you belong. Alright everybody, welcome to the show. It is Wednesday and it's time for another episode. I am your host, Luke, and today we're going to be getting into a little overview on some stuff. So normally when I record these episodes, you know, I do it a couple days in advance, uh, put all the time into the research and stuff, and then I give myself some time to go through and edit everything pretty well. Um, I had a death in the family and had to go out of town for a little bit this week, so I'm running really far behind. In fact, today is Wednesday at 10 in the morning that I'm recording this, so it's going to go live pretty much right when I'm done with it. So the editing might not be as good as usual. Uh, Not that my editing is (laughs) exactly professional at this point. I'm getting better at it. But um, I apologize if it's not, not as good as usual. But I was obviously kind of scrambling for an episode this week um, and trying to decide what I was going to do here last minute. So I decided to kind of do a little bit of an overview episode. So I think two weeks ago or something, I did my Bigfoot episode. And when I did that, I talked about how each one of those uh, particular cases that I talked about could have their own episode. But I wanted to do an overview of Bigfoot first so that when I get into those cases later on, um, you guys will kind of have a little bit of a of a backstory to lean on for them. Well, I'm going to kind of do the same thing today. So today, instead of Bigfoot, I'm going to be going over paranormal hotspots. There's a few places throughout the world that have like way more paranormal activity, whether it be UFOs or ghosts or usually a little bit of everything. Um, call these flaps. When a, when a lot of high strangeness happens in one place at once, you call that a flap for whatever reason. I don't know who came up with that word. But there's places that have these big flaps consistently over and over. And a lot of them are pretty well known. Um, And then there's ones that, of course, aren't as well known as well. So at some point, I'm going to want to do an episode on each one of these things individually um, and go through all the stories around them. But today, I just kind of figured I'd give you a little bit of a overview of ones that are in North America, at least, and some of the stories around them and some of the similarities about them and then talk a little bit about maybe what's going on with them. So that's what we're going to do today. Again, um, I'm just kind of running through this. A lot of this is going to be kind of off the top of my head of things that I already know from doing years of looking into this stuff anyway. So it might be a little uh, not as outlined as, as usual. And then again, with my editing, I usually spend a long time editing and taking out all my mess ups and all my ums and everything. I'm probably not going to do that today. So you got to bear with me and forgive me. One of these days when you guys spread the word more and I have hundreds of thousands of millions of listeners, then I can hire a team to do all the editing for me. But at this point, I do it all on my own. Um, and it takes four times as long to edit things as it does to record them. So this one's going to be a little more of a rough cut today. But anyway, all that being said, let's get into it. So the first one we're going to talk about is Skinwalker Ranch. And Skinwalker Ranch is very, very popular. I'm sure anybody out there who's into this kind of thing has already heard a lot about it. There's probably a couple dozen TV shows and documentaries and movies about it. And there is currently, I think, a very long uh, periodical show called The Secrets of Skinwalker Ranch that's been going on for a little while. So it's, it's made its way into popular culture enough that I'm sure you've all heard of it, but just in case you haven't, I'm going to give you a quick little, very quick little overview of Skinwalker Ranch in itself. So essentially, Skinwalker Ranch is down in southeast Utah, and back in 1789, back in that that area there, there was a treaty, excuse me, there was a treaty that broke between the Utes, uh, Native Americans, and the Navajo. 
So they started button heads with each other, of course, and were kind of, you know, warring tribes at the time. And then almost 100 years later, in 1860, the Northern Ute Reservation was established by the presidential decree. So, of course, we decided that uh, we own everything and decide where people live. So we created the Northern Ute Reservation and gave them that land. Because the Utes, at that time in 1860, joined the U.S. troops in a campaign against the Navajos. So the U.S. essentially says, we want to fight the Navajo Nation. Um, and the Utes join the U.S. government, and so they give them this land. Since, you know, it was so much theirs to give. But uh, because of that, supposedly the Navajos put a curse on the land. They call this the Skinwalker Curse. So a Skinwalker, um, depending on where you look, can be used in a lot of different ways. But generally, we're just going to kind of say it's an evil spirit at this point. There's a lot of folklore around what a Skinwalker is and it being um, associated with cannibalism and a, a spirit that inhabits people. There's also stories of it being old medicine men that kind of turned evil and then were able to turn into different animals. So depending on kind of where the lore comes from, skinwalkers are described as different things. But as, as this sense, we're just going to kind of say that it was an evil spirit that was cursed on the land. So about six years later, after they moved these natives there and told them that they could have this land since they helped them go to war with the Navajo, they moved some buffalo soldiers there and created a fort, a military fort there. One of those buffalo soldiers was a mason, and we find Masonic symbols etched into rock walls there. So that may or may not play into this later on um, when we get into the reasons why all this is happening, but that is kind of an interesting fact that happened with that. So then in 1906, about 20 years after they built the fort there, uh, the newspaper started reporting strange noises that were coming from the, the basin there by homesteaders. They were saying that they were hearing some weird things coming out, so... Right off the bat, we're starting to get some kind of strangeness going on all the way back in 1906. And then in 1937, the Myers family bought it. And, you know, after all the Warren was done, the government sold it off. So the Myers family bought it, built the ranch there, and owned it for quite a long time. And there's not a whole lot of reports of them um, seeing things. Other people at the time had seen some things, uh, like Pat Stringham, was a man who had reported UFO and skinwalker activity between the 40s and the 60s. But for the most part, when they when the Myers family owned it, it was kind of quiet. Um, in 79, there were some UFOs witnessed uh, around the hilltops up there. But I don't think the Myers family were too adamant about uh, craziness going on. But, but there were still things being reported around the area. And that was until 1992. And that's when the Sherman family bought it. So in 92, the Sherman family bought it from the Myers and that's when they started reporting all sorts of strange things. So there was reports of cattle mutilations, UFOs, orbs, a uh, giant wolf that we'll talk about in, the sec in a second that's uh, not really a wolf. So a whole bunch of kind of crazy stuff started happening. And then in 1996, a report came out in the Salt Lake City paper, the Desert News, talking about all this. So we had this man, Robert Bigelow, come in and buy the property because he had heard about all this strange stuff and wanted to investigate it. And Robert Bigelow is a pretty interesting man. He He's very rich, obviously, and he owns Bigelow Aerospace and the National Institute for Discovery Sciences and the Budget Suites of America. Um, has his hands in kind of a little bit of everything. Well, he hears about all this high strangeness going on at this Skinwalker Ranch, and he wants to get involved and, and kind of get to the bottom of it. So he purchased it in 1996. And he set up the National Institute for Discovery Sciences, or NIDS, uh, program 
and operated on there from 96 to 2002. And alongside that, there was also another program running on that went all the way till 2013. And then in 2015, Bigelow got done with it. So during that time, he did a whole bunch of investigations and find, and supposedly found all these crazy things that were going on um, that we're going to talk about here in just a second. But he was the rich backer that kind of went in and, and checked all this out for, for years after hearing these reports. During that time as well, it's, it's good to note that the government was involved uh, with a lot of the different things that were going on there. Again, I'm not going to get too deep into any of these places too much today because I'm kind of just doing an overview um, and rushing through this, but I will do an episode at some point. And there's so much media out there about Skinwalker Ranch. If you're really interested, I mean, just type it into your search bar anywhere and you're going to find seasons and seasons of stuff in it. Um, so I will do one at some point, but I'm not going to not going to jump too deep in at this very moment. Just going to kind of give you a little brief history. So after Bigelow was done with it in 2015, a uh, kind of mysterious organization called Adamantium Real Estate bought it in 2016. And then since then, they've started doing like the History Channel documentaries and, and all sorts of stuff after that. Um, and and I'd have to look into Adamantium Real Estate and I will, you know, at, at some point when I do an episode on this in particular. But from what I remember, at least when it first happened, it was kind of... Uh, kind of secretive about who owned that and what that organization really was. So that kind of adds another layer to things here. But that's kind of a brief history of the Skinwalker Ranch. So now let's talk about why this is even a crazy place in the first place. So ever since those reports started, like I said, way back in the day, people started hearing weird sounds around it. But there's also a lot of other things that have happened. One of those things is this giant wolf that people see. It's like this overly large big glowing red-eyed silver wolf and there's all these reports of people who had seen it and shot it multiple times and it did absolutely no damage to it or they would shoot it and it would kind of fall down and then get back up and growl at them and walk away and uh the the idea around it and what these people claim is that this thing isn't just a wolf it's some sort of kind of spirit wolf that has been put out on the land and it's this huge black thing that's that's roaming around and um, kind of causing havoc and messing with messing with the cattle and things like that. You know, kind of a side note, I knew somebody once who supposedly worked on this ranch. He was ex-military. And like I said, the military had their hands in all this. In fact, in a lot of the documentaries, people go up to the gates and the military comes and meets them and says, you can't, you can't touch this. So, you know, the, the military spends a lot of money on black budget projects um, looking into things that you wouldn't expect them to look into. You know, if there's anything paranormal or supernatural or anything that could give them any sort of power in any way, of course they want their hands in it. And of course they want to be able to uh, study it and then use it in any way that they can. So they actually had their hands in this for quite a while. And there was private military and all sorts of stuff um, around it during a lot of these operations. But anyway, one of the guys that I met years ago supposedly had worked there. And one of the stories that he claimed is he was out staying in a tent and he was working security and he was staying in a tent and he woke up in the middle of the night and there was, he said it sounded like a tribal dance going on around him. So he comes out of his tent and there's, he said it just looked like there was Native Americans just all over him, just dancing to music and fires going on and all sorts of stuff. And then he looked over and there's this giant, wolf the same wolf that everybody else describes and it ran at him and he starts to go back towards his tent to get his gun and this thing kind of jumped through him and disappeared um and i know that these stories sound super far-fetched <laughs> but we're going to get into more a little bit down the line here about what might be going on 
And uh, this is a very common thing that people talk about there is this big giant red-eyed wolf that's definitely not just something physical. Another thing that happens around here all the time is UFOs. Um, UFOs and orbs. So orbs are like, you know, just the balls of light that you see kind of, or maybe you've seen, but people see just kind of floating around all the time, but they almost kind of seem like they have their own intelligence. Uh, and it's not ball lightning, you know, ball lightning is its own phenomena that's very, very interesting, but they're usually like glowing, glowing orange orbs that kind of move around like they are being controlled or they're controlling themselves. So a lot of people have seen UFO activity and then seen those orbs as well. And the UFO activity, it's really interesting where people that aren't even associated with this, but live around the area or even go to the area to see this have seen a lot of it. So there's a place called like UFO Ridge where people will drive up because they're not allowed to go on the property, especially when the government and uh, other entities where they're working on it. But people will drive up to the ridges around it and just watch out over. And a lot of people say, yeah, I went there and I watched and I saw this UFO come up out of there and I saw, you know, these orbs and all these different things. So even people that aren't trying to, you know, bid for fame by getting involved in these programs are claiming to see these things coming in and out of there. And along those lines, the next thing that happens pretty regularly there, supposedly, is cattle mutilations. So if you don't know what cattle mutilation is, it's when somebody's livestock gets found, but they have their organs removed, their eyes and tongue removed, and they have they have uh, medical precision cuts all over their body. So it's not like somebody just went out there with a knife, and it's definitely not like an animal went in. A lot of times their organs will be drained out of them, and their or will be liquefied and kind of pulled out. And many times their bodies will actually be drained of all fluids, drained of blood. And this happens a lot on there. In fact, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I remember a story where a man who was on the ranch was talking about his livestock and his cow was like right there in front of him he turned around he walks back like two seconds later and the cow's just gone and then they end up finding it like in a field way far away from where it was originally and this has happened to it you know all the soft tissue removed all the organs removed and that's a very common thing that happens with ufo sightings um and you know something i'll get into again like i talked about in my episode is it ufos or is it government robots there's something doing experimentation on these things whether it's something man-made and the government's doing it for genetic research or doing it for uh, just to scare people as like a psyop or there's another species out there who's doing genetic research on animals and on humans because we do find this happening on humans as well sometimes which is really scary um, but this is a very common trope with ufos and this happens pretty commonly supposedly on this skinwalker ranch and the last thing that i'm going to mention and there's a ton i mean there's just a ton of different stories around skinwalker ranch that's why it's become so famous so i'm just giving you kind of a highlight of a couple of them but there's there's many many more you can find when you look into it and and when i do an episode on this at some point but the next one that i remember hearing about that is kind of interesting because it's going to kind of link up with another thing that we hear pretty soon here is when some of these researchers were out there they were sitting up on kind of this watchtower and he said he was just looking into the darkness and then it was like the darkness opened up like if you had a sliding window of darkness and it just opened into this light and he said it, he looked into the light and it was like a light hallway and then this creature this humanoid dark shadow figure 
crawled out of this uh, hallway of light, got out, and then ran off, and this thing shut behind him. Of course, this guy's shit in his pants the whole time, and he didn't get it on video, so again, there's no uh, documentation of that. But that was a claim that was made, and it's something that's going to be very similar to something we see in one of these other areas here pretty soon. So that's kind of a, a brief history of Skinwalker Ranch and the things that happen around it. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about maybe why those are happening in, in just a couple minutes here after I get to these other ones. But that's one of the most well-known ones. I'm sure that most of you guys have heard about it. If you haven't heard about it, um, there you go. Now you, now you have. <laughs> so let's move on to the next one. The next one is Chestnut Ridge. So I've talked about this before in my Bigfoot episode. I mentioned a documentary and I actually mis misnamed it in that. I called it uh, Battle at Chestnut Ridge. It's actually called Invasion at Chestnut Ridge. But Chestnut Ridge is a very interesting place. So Chestnut Ridge is a ridge that is down in Pennsylvania and it covers a pretty wide area. So it has a, a few towns that are associated with it and a few different counties that it runs through. Um, but it has a lot of paranormal activity that happens all through these in these Appalachian Mountains. It's very thick, dense woods. Like I live in Montana. I know about, you know, being out in the woods and, and dense woods, but when I see videos and pictures of this place, it's like, you know, the canopies where it's dark underneath them, like really, really dense woods. And there's a ton of high strangeness that happens around there. So in this documentary, the Battle for Chestnut Ridge, or I'm sorry, the, I did it again, the invasion at Chestnut Ridge, uh, you know, it talks to people who have lived there their whole lives and uh, people who have lived there and investigated things around there their whole lives. And there's just a plethora of all these different phenomena that happen that reoccur over and over again. The biggest one, though, that we're going to talk about first is the Kecksburg UFO crash. So on December 9th, 1965, a fireball was seen over six U.S. states and over Canada. So it started in Canada. It's made its way down over Detroit and Michigan and Windsor, Ontario, you know, all the way down and crashed in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania. And in this documentary, they and that was reported by news stations, all sorts of stuff that, that there is no question that that happened. Um, and in this documentary, they go through and they interview a bunch of people who were alive at that time and saw this thing happen you know of course they were much younger at the time a lot of them were early teens or, or kids but they talk about the the event that happened so the news said okay this fireball went through it was a meteor that disappeared or whatever but according to everybody that was there and a lot of the documentation that they they talk about um in this documentary this thing hit and crashed and within hours the military starts showing up blocks it all off and starts recovering all the pieces from this thing. And I think they ended up saying that it was a piece of a plane or something that fell off. But everybody who saw it said, no, that's absolutely not what happened. Um, especially some of the, the younger kids who were curious when it first hit went up to it. And when they went up to it, they what they describe is this thing that looks like a chestnut, looks like a, a, a nut that fell um, or kind of like a bell. And it has inscriptions and hieroglyphs all the way around it. Now, what's really, really interesting about that is during World War II, there was a supposed secret Nazi program called Die Glock, which means the bell. And they made this Nazi um, craft, essentially, this, this project that they were working on that looked like a bell and looked very, very similar to this thing that is described at the Kecksburg UFO crash. And the, the descriptions of it 
is that there was this this bell that they had on this big platform and it was chained to it and that it had inscriptions and hieroglyphs all the way around the outside and it would spin and rotate and um, it could levitate and there was theories that it was used maybe for time travel but it was either some kind of spaceship or, or time portal thing that the nazi military was working on and they were into all sorts of different esoteric stuff and looking for different artifacts that would you know give them any upper hand in the war and, and hitler and his crew were really big into trying to communicate essentially with extraterrestrials or what they thought was the you know, the higher race and get help from them. And there's a lot of reports that maybe they did that, like when they contacted the Vril Society. And I've, I've talked about that in other episodes before. But anyway, this uh, this diglock, this bell that was rumored to, to happen, there's a story that goes around with it that at the end of the war, the people who were working on it, the two main um, officials that were doing this project, got into this thing as the allied forces were coming, taking everything down and they took off in this and disappeared. And that's, you know, hard to document. Uh, you, you'll find stories about it, but I can't claim that that's true. But what's crazy is then after the war, like 20 years later, this thing that looks exactly like Die Glock was described crashes into Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, and the military comes in takes it all away tells everybody to shut the hell up about it in fact the people who did get like pictures of it supposedly the government came and took their cameras and smashed them you know like you see in the movies the men in black come and take your stuff and smash it and say you didn't see nothing you know people claim that that's what happened with this thing and uh you know it was so prominent it was seen by so many people that there's actually a statue in kecksburg of this thing um, and it looks like if you if you look at a picture of this, and I'll have these linked up on my website, but if you look at a picture of this thing and then you look at a picture of what the Nazi die Glock was and you put them side by side, it it looks like the exact same thing. So the idea, or at least my idea, is that the Nazis got into this thing, took off. I don't know if they use it some sort of time travel or it was some sort of uh, space capsule or what, but then 20 years later crashed down and the government went and recovered it. So that is one of the things that happened in Chestnut Ridge. Now, what's more in line with everything we're talking about is everything else that happens around there. So, for one, of course, there's a ton of UFO sightings all the time. And again, this ridge runs through a couple towns. So, this is hundreds of people reporting this stuff consistently over the years. So, you have all the UFOs and you have all the orbs, just like I was talking about at Skinwalker Ranch. And then you also have a ton of Bigfoot sightings and other humanoid creatures, mostly Bigfoot, though. All these uh, stories of people talking about seeing seeing sasquatch or him coming and kind of messing with him one lady was talking about how she was in her trailer that she lived in and she heard something big outside and it grabbed and it lifted up the corner of her trailer and then dropped it down and ran off well she calls the cops and freaks out and it's you know there's cops talking about how this happened and they come and start investigating it well it starts to get into the news and um so one of the one of the researchers that that lives over there and has been looking into the weird happenings around Chestnut Ridge for the last like 40 years or something, he was contacted by a government agency, I think the CIA, but I'm not 100% sure, and they you know, were like, "Hey, we're really interested in this. Keep us up to date on what's going on." So, of course, you know, especially back in like the 70s and 80s, you're not going to be like, "Oh, the government's out to stop people from learning about ufos so he was sharing information with them so when this happened he called them up and told them that hey some lady had this weird thing happen and there's giant footprints out 
And so they came to her house and the same thing happened where the guy, you know, you can hear her tell the story in the documentary, but the guy who pulled up in this unmarked car started, he took a couple pictures and then he started like getting rid of the footprints, like kicking them around with his feet. And some little kid comes up with a camera and he takes the camera out of the kid's hand and says, this is our camera now, gets back in his car and takes off. Um, so you have, again, the government being uh, associated with looking into things like this, but not wanting it to get out. And again, a spot where a ton of people are seeing these same things. You know, that's just one story of, of a Sasquatch sighting there, but there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who claim that they hear Sasquatch, find footprints, have seen him, things like that. So it's a very common place there. Another one that's going to play back into the Skinwalker Ranch. Remember I just talked about that uh, thing, that that like light door opening up and that thing crawled out of it? Well, in that Invasion at Chestnut Ridge documentary, some of these researchers are telling a story, and I talked about this in, on one of my other episodes, but uh, researchers were telling a story where they went out into the very dark woods. It's a cloudy, starless night, and they're underneath this very dense canopy. So they said it's like ink black, you know, like you can't see your hand in front of your face. All of a sudden, they see this light that looked like a lantern kind of swing, just this little ball of light going through the woods. And they all kind of look over at it and like, what the hell is that? They think some guy's walking out there with like an old school lantern. So they shine their flashlights at it. And how they describe it, how these people say it happened, is that this doorway of light kind of opened up out of the blackness, just like I was talking about at Skinwalker Ranch. And this light bulb went inside of it and then it closed behind there and then it was just pitch black again. Um, so it's like this dimensional door opens up in these high, strange hot spots. Um, and again, we'll, we'll kind of get into that a little bit here more in a minute about how or why that may be happening. But it's very interesting that they both describe that exact same thing. Another big one that happens around Kecksburg and around the Chestnut Ridge in this area that runs up and down this valley there is Thunderbirds. So Thunderbirds are giant pterodactyl-like birds essentially just um, imagine that pterodactyls didn't go extinct um, people claim to see these things all over the world in fact in native american folklore you know thunderbirds were pretty common but it's something that we think there's absolutely no way that these things are still going on and still out there but there's actually some photos of some supposed thunderbirds being shot by uh people in the old west now those photos are <laughs> Again, I'm not going to claim that those are real, but they are fun photos. I'll, I'll link them up on my site. But Thunderbirds are something that have been seen pretty commonly in places like this. And again, in that documentary and, and a lot of people around there claim to see these gigantic birds. In fact, one young boy was supposedly picked up by one. Luckily, it dropped him before it took him too far. Um, but they're big enough to pick humans up, you know. And there's other stories of guys like like there's a retired military personnel who moved there um, after the military and, you know, kind of built a little, little life there for himself and his family. And he tells a story about just taking his kids down to, I can't remember if he was at the park or he was at on his property, but he saw this thing that he thought was a, a tree stump. And he's like, well, that's kind of weird looking tree stump. So he started getting closer to it and he said it picks his head up and looks to the side. And the best way he can describe it is it was like a freaking pterodactyl. And then this thing opened up its wings and took off and obviously scared the shit out of him. Um, but it's a, it's a common occurrence to see these thunderbirds in places that have these kind of high strangenesses going on. Um, every once in a while, you can find a video online of, of people posting pictures of, 
of supposed Thunderbirds. Problem with that is there's no frame of reference, right? So you see this video of something up in the sky and you're like, wow, that looks like a huge bird. But all that's in the background is the sky. So it might also just be, you know, a big eagle or something. Um, of course, anytime somebody gets footage, it's grainy, which is understandable. Everybody says, well, why is your footage always grainy when you get a UFO or something? But have you ever tried to take your phone and zoom into like a cloud or an airplane or something? Like it's just, that's just kind of how it comes out. But anyway, um, yeah, Thunderbirds are, are another very common one that happen around these areas. So from there, we're going on to the Bridgewater Triangle. And the Bridgewater Triangle is an area that's about 200 square miles, and it's in southeast Massachusetts. And this is kind of the same thing that we're talking about with the um, Chestnut Ridge area, where it's just a plethora of really strange things that happen. So a ton of UFOs, a ton of orbs. Uh, humanoid creatures, mostly Bigfoot, but other things like shadow people um, and ghosts get claimed to have been seen around there a lot. Um, and then there's also kind of like unnatural animals like giant dogs, kind of like the big wolf that you see down in Skinwalker Ranch. And they also talk about giant snakes that shouldn't be there or giant panthers or bears or things that aren't supposed to be in that area. But the thing about, well, the thing about all these, but the thing about especially these ones that run through like a couple towns is that these reports are so commonplace. It's not like some drunk guy in the woods claimed he saw Sasquatch. You know, it's like hundreds and hundreds of people who live in this area make these claims consistently. So much so that like in these documentaries, when they go talk to people about it, they're just like, yeah, that's just something we deal with around here. It's just something you know that happens. And some people talk about it, some people don't, but it's just kind of part of everyday life. Um, they also, in this Bridgewater Triangle, see a lot of these Thunderbirds, these giant birds flying around I was just talking about in the Chestnut Ridge. So another instance where it just, it just lines up. It's like these places kind of have the same thing going on. There's also a lot of cattle mutilations that happen around the Bridgewater Triangle. And it gets chalked up to cult activity. So supposedly... There's been a lot of cults, um, including murders, people getting tied to trees and dismembered and all sorts of stuff around this area. And, um, the, you know, the kind of the idea is there's a good documentary on this called the Bridgewater Triangle, but you can find information on the Internet that I'll link. But the idea is that these cults go to these places because they're these paranormal hotspots. But then there's the other idea that maybe these cults are kind of opening portals. And we'll, we'll get into that in a minute here. Um, but. You'll find a lot of, you know, there, there's been cults that have been busted there and they've found murders and people being mutilated and stuff. And then you'll also find all these cattle mutilations. But again, see a lot of UFOs and these things always get tied into each other. So uh, I don't know if we can blame those ones on the cults or not. I'll have to find a cult member and ask him if he's been cutting cows up. But that is something that they find. One thing that did happen there, supposedly, which uh, ties into some stuff we're going to get into when I get into talking about what might be going on here is Native American curses. So according to legend, the Native Americans actually cursed that area because of a big conflict with colonial settlers. So we pretty much went in and killed a whole bunch of them and they put a curse on the land. And that is one of the ideas that might have sparked all of this. And that kind of ties into again with Skinwalker Ranch, right? Where the Navajos put that skinwalker curse on the Ute people because they worked with the U.S. government to go take them out and steal the land from them. Or I don't, 
don't know if they stole land or they were fighting over it. I don't know exactly how that worked, but they ended up with the land um, and they, the land got cursed by Native American tribes, supposedly. One thing that is unique to this area that I think is kind of fun, I love these little things, are the Pukwaji. And they're a creature from Algonquin folklore. And they are said to be these kind of dangerous little trickster people, kind of like little gnomes and elves and other cultures that we see all over the world. But they're these little kind of potbelly, um, you know, three foot tall humanoid things that will kind of lure people into the woods. And then nobody knows what happens, but nothing good. And there's a story from this man in this documentary who talks about he's walking his dog and underneath the streetlight, he sees this little thing that he thinks is a kid and it starts telling him, I forget exactly how it sounded, but it was like, and it starts like kind of reaching his hand out and like saying this over and over to him. Well, the guy got this creepy feeling and he's like, well, fuck this. Once he realized that it wasn't a kid. And he got out of there. And then later, you know, he says, I was thinking about it. And it sounded like he was trying to say, we want you come with me. And it was holding its hand out. So it was like it was trying to lure him into the woods, which by folklore is what these things do. And then they, I don't know if they kill you or they take you to their little area or who knows what they do to you. But you don't want to go with them. Um, but there's a handful of people who claims that they've seen these little Pukwajis there. Um, I mean, I would just kick the thing but <laughs> it's it's pretty interesting that again we have this pervasive element that's been all the way from native american folklore up to modern times when people claim that they're seeing them so that's kind of a very brief overview of the bridgewater triangle and the next we go to the bermuda triangle i don't have to get too far into this one everybody knows what the bermuda triangle is hundreds of ships and airplanes have gone missing there and just disappeared um, and then there's the stories like I've talked about in other episodes of military pilots flying into spiraling clouds and then popping up four hours away from where they're supposed to be within like 10 minutes and all these kind of high strangeness things that happen around this area. But something that I ran into last night when I was looking into this is in 2012, supposedly they found a crystal pyramid at the bottom of this, and that's going to come into play in a minute. But they found a crystal pyramid supposedly at the bottom of the ocean in the Bermuda Triangle. Now that made it into the news, went all over the place. And now when you look it up, it's completely, well, it never happened. Um, it's completely false and that was never found. And it was just a big hoax that got made up and all over. And maybe that's the case, but it would also be very likely that it would be something that got covered up because it would show a whole lot of different things. Like there was a civilization on the earth before us. Um, because the, you know, land wasn't dry there for a very, very long time. And it might also add some explanation into these things that are happening around there that they try over and over and over again to explain with natural causes. I mean, they, they'll say things like there's, uh, thermal bubbles that come up and then release different chemicals in the air that mess with instruments. And I mean, they've, they've tried to explain what happens there for years and years and years. And they always come out and say, oh, I think we got it. And then they say something else, say something else. But there might be a more paranormal um, or or kind of esoteric thing that's going on that they don't want people to know about. And if there was a civilization that was there before, maybe underneath the ocean, there's remnants of old technology or something that are messing with instruments and and creating time vortexes and all these different things. So I'm not going to get too much into the Bermuda Triangle stories at the moment. Uh, I'll do that again when I do an episode on it at some point in time. But just know that there's been hundreds of accounts of ships disappearing and planes going down and people disappearing and all sorts of stuff there. 
And then the last one I'm going to talk about is the Lake Michigan Triangle, which is really interesting how these things are always triangles. Um, I don't know if that's just how we map them out or, I mean, triangles, the, the number three are very deep in lore when it comes to anything esoteric and occult symbolism you know even the pyramids right are essentially four-sided triangles or actually eight-sided i don't know if you know that but the pyramids are actually eight-sided because they concave on the middle of each side but anyway um the michigan the lake michigan triangle is this giant area of lake michigan where all these unexplained things happen like one of the most uh earliest known and, and most famous ones is the disappearance of the sailing ship La Griffin and her crew. So the ship went out onto this lake from uh, left from Green Bay, had 12,000 pounds of fur and set sail for Lake Erie and then just never arrived. And there's there's a whole list of airplanes. It's just like the Bermuda Triangle airplanes and ships that go out onto the ocean. You know, everything's fine, looks good. And then just never show up and just disappear. And scientifically, they say it's probably from rogue waves, which are just waves that come out of nowhere and swallow things up, which in itself, to me, sounds pretty damn paranormal when you have a perfectly calm sea and then this thing jumps up and pulls you down. Um, but I mean, I'm sure they have scientific explanations for that. But a lot of the times that's what they they credit these disappeared ships for. But it doesn't change the fact of the matter that it all happens in this very specific location. So, I mean, you have all the Great Lakes around there, and it's only this one area of this one lake where these things are all happening. So you get these, these uh, big similarities between this place and the Bermuda Triangle. But what's really, really interesting is not long ago, underneath Lake Michigan, they found a Stonehenge. That's right. They found a small stone well not small i mean the rocks are bigger than people but compared to the other stonehenge that you're thinking of it's it's a little smaller but at the bottom of the lake they found a, a stonehenge um there is a there somebody built it there was at some point a dry bed there and a native culture of some kind or an old ancient culture of some kind built a stonehenge at the bottom of this lake so what does that mean and why is that important well let's get into some theories here. So the first theory could be that this is all fake, right? It's all bullshit. People are just making all this up. Um, these whole big towns of people all come together and say, hey, we're going to trick the world and, and build up some tourism. Um, I mean, that's a possibility. I don't really buy into that one too much, especially with places like the Chestnut Ridge and the Bridgewater Triangle, where you have hundreds of people from all these little tiny different towns and stuff, and they're not out getting in news stories and making you know money off this anyway and writing books about it i mean everyone of course some people do that from time or else we wouldn't know about it but for the most part these people get hunted down by reporters and hunted down by uh, documentary filmmakers who come and talk to the people in the town and then they tell their stories so it's not like they're they're trying to get recognition for this and a lot of the times when it comes to things like this when you go out and start talking about it People ostracize you for it, right? You lose your job, you lose your friends, people think you're crazy. So there's not a whole lot of um, benefit to go out there and say, I saw this giant Thunderbird that came and picked my kid up and then dropped him on the ground, uh, knowing that everybody's going to think that you're a nut job. And so people usually don't talk about it until they're probed by a documentary filmmaker or something that goes around in these towns and starts asking people, hey, you ever seen anything weird and kind of gets them to open up a little bit. 
So it could be faked, um, but I, I'm leaning away from that one. I think there's other explanations. Another explanation is that these places could be uh, intoxicated by something. Like maybe there's some natural gases that leak out of the ground and people actually are seeing these things, but they're all hallucinating. So there's these big pockets where chemicals are coming out of the ground for whatever reason and making people kind of lose their minds a little bit. Again, I'm not buying into that one too much just because I feel like at this point, if that was happening, um, people would have figured it out. <laughs> you know, they would have said, oh, this horrible toxic gas that's making you hallucinate has been, you know, plaguing these towns for the last 150 years. Um, but that is a possibility. There has been cases like the dance craze in France where people danced in the streets until they died, where it comes out later that we think that it was probably a mold that was growing on the the wheat that they were eating that made them all trip essentially like they were on acid. Um, so there's, there's times when things like that do happen, but I feel like in modern day, we would kind of get to the bottom of that a little, a little sooner, um, and, and know what was going on there. The next idea kind of ties into a couple things and it's the ley lines. So if you don't know what ley lines are, ley lines are essentially these proposed lines that match up all the energy points and in a big grid around the earth. So just picture, you know, the earth with uh, all these perfectly straight lines running in different directions all over the places, this big grid. And then they cross at some point and they meet. Well, what's really interesting about these ley lines, and these were kind of thought up by a guy, I think back in the early 1900s or something, I'll have to do an episode about ley lines at some point. But essentially, what's really interesting about them is when we take megalithic structures and all these ancient sites like Stonehenge and the pyramids and things like that, you can draw a straight line through them a lot of the time, and it'll it'll connect all them in a straight line. Now, people have gone uh, to debunk that and said, well, I can draw a straight line through a bunch of pizza joints, and I can draw a straight line through a bunch of coffee shops and stuff like that. And yeah, that's true. That is the case. But when you get like Stonehenge and the pyramids of Egypt and the pyramids down in South America and the pyramid, you know, and all these different huge megalithic sites, and you can just draw a straight line all the way through them, then you're like, okay, well, maybe there was a reason why these things were built there. Like we say that these pyramids were just tombs. I don't believe that in the slightest. Um, there's, especially the Great Pyramid. I know some of them were tombs. I'm not saying that they weren't, but like the Great Pyramid, they've never found that it was a tomb. In fact, they just found another chamber underneath it that they're thinking is going to be the tomb, but it won't. Um, and there's there's ideas that maybe they were energy generators, um, like Tesla was trying to work on, where he was creating a universal energy grid for free energy all over the place. There's ideas that maybe they were portals. There were all these different things. But for whatever reason, they were all built on these very specific locations of these energy lines. So we know that the earth has a magnetic field all over it. So we can kind of plot out where these fields are the strongest and where they're the strongest is where these ley lines all kind of meet together and create these energy points or these kind of vortexes. Well, these areas that I'm talking about today with these high strangeness are on these ley lines and or where these ley lines meet. So the idea that I'm kind of proposing here is especially with the Bermuda and the bridge or and the uh, Michigan Lake Triangle, um, you know, we can kind of separate these into the two categories. We have the ones on the land, like the first three I talked about with the um, Skinwalker Ranch and the Bridgewater Triangle and Chestnut Ridge, and then we have the ones in the water. Well, the ones in the water 
seem to have these megalithic structures at the bottom of them. We have the Lake Michigan with Stonehenge, and we have a maybe, it's a very disputed, but maybe crystal pyramid at the bottom of the Bermuda Triangle. So maybe the reason why these things were built there isn't that these are are creating these problems or creating these um, energy vortexes, but that there is natural energy vortexes there because they're on these points of these ley lines and ancient civilizations recognize that. And so they built these monoliths there either in ceremonial purposes, just because they recognize that it was a kind of a holy spot or because they use them for something like portals or like uh, communication or whatever, knowing that they were connected to this kind of earth wide energy grid. So the same Stonehenge that we see over the big world Stonehenge that everybody talks about is on one of these ley lines. Then you have this littler Stonehenge in the Lake Michigan Triangle on one of these ley lines. Um, so maybe the reason why these ships and everything, their instruments mess up and they go down and people lose you know track of their flight. If you're flying through the air and all of a sudden your instruments start reading upside down, it can mess you up pretty damn bad. Maybe the reason why they're doing that is because these places are magnetic anomalies and they're they're where the Earth's magnetic fields run into each other so strong that it kind of messes up with instruments. And again, the natives recognize that and they just used it or thought of it as a, a holy place. So that could be an explanation for at least for those two uh, with the disappearances, maybe not so much for the other places, but it could be for those as well, that if there's these energy points where these ley lines meet together and the earth's magnetic field is a lot um, looser let's say or it's, it's getting kind of mixed around because it's running into each other there maybe it kind of opens a portal to another dimension and that's why people see weird things like these holes opening up and these things crawling outside because maybe that's where the veil is a little bit thinner so that could be an explanation as well the next one is of course these native american uh curses that happen so I, this one's always been really interesting to me that when you find these areas of high strangeness or, or really um, prominent ghost places and stuff, you know, there's, it's, a, it's such a trope that you built a house on an Indian burial ground and then the house gets haunted. Like in the movie Poltergeist, it's, it's a trope that that happens, that it, it's such, it's so prevalent in our culture. But when you find these places like Bridgewater Triangle and Skinwalker Ranch that have this high strangeness, and then you find out that, yeah, there was an Indian massacre there, and they put a curse on the land, and then all these things happen. So it, that's always seemed so far-fetched to me, because it's like, well, if I die and I put a curse, is it going to create like cryptids and stuff in that area? But Native Americans were much, much more um, in tune with things like that. And they believed them. Their whole cultures were built around it. So there is a possibility that they had the ability to be connected enough with the other side of the veil, you know, with the other worlds, that if they were to have something horrible happen and, um, you know, there was a massacre there or maybe we disrupted their, their graveyards and their burial grounds, um, that it would produce kind of an opening to another world where these things live. Um, you know, it's the same thing with like mummy curses. Like we, there's that whole trope about mummy curses. We go and disrupt this mummy and then the plague happens and all these different things. So there's something to do with these more ancient cultures that were more connected to the magical side of things, if you want to call it that, 
that when in death, if something is strong enough or happens that's horrible enough, it creates these kind of portals and vortexes. And again, it's always been in my head, it always seems so far fetched that that happens, but you see it time and time and time again. So we can't count it out. You know, I'll have to do a lot more looking into that at some point, but it is really interesting to me. And that could be an explanation for why these things happen in pockets, because generally the, these things happen in pockets where usually Europeans went and slaughtered a bunch of Native Americans. And then, you know, it's like they, they get their vengeance throughout time by by opening a portal to the other worlds there, especially when you see things like Thunderbirds that they talk about where Thunderbirds were a Native American lore, and that's where you see them mostly as a Native American lore, and they still are pervasive in these areas where these uh, tragedies happen to these Native tribes. So that is one idea that there's a, a portal open from that. Another one would be that cults are opening these portals. Um, like I was talking about over in the Bridgewater Triangle, there's a lot of cult activity there. So maybe there's something to do with people, you know, getting in contact with things from the other side or trying to open portals up so that they can kind of loosen the veil like CERN is doing. <laughs> Talk about that later. But um, it might be that it's not so much a curse as people purposely kind of opening these portals up. And then on the other hand, it might be that these areas are, you know, a little looser with the veil and that these cults recognize this and that's why they use these areas to do this in the first place. So could kind of go either way there. And then another idea, and this kind of goes along the lines more of what I think might be happening here, is that these places are pretty commonly around cavernous areas. So there's caves underneath our feet all over the place, and that's, you know, common knowledge. But I've talked about this many times before because it kind of plays into everything at some point, that there's a possibility that their Earth isn't hollow like an eggshell, but it's it's cavernous to the point where there's whole civilizations and worlds underneath our feet. Um, and I think that there's a lot of evidence of that. And I will definitely be talking about that at some point, doing a very long full episode about all the uh, things that tie into that. But if there is these pockets underneath our feet where these creatures that we would say are extinct or we would call cryptids and things actually live, when you get to these places that are littered with these cavernous openings like these mining towns because like chestnut ridge and stuff are are old mining towns a lot of them and there's there's mines and abandoned mines and, and pathways into the earth and into the mountains all over the place you start seeing all these ufos and all these cryptids well what if these things are just a civilization that has advanced technology so that would be the ufos and then these different animals that live down there that sometimes make their way up on top. Because a lot of the UFO reports, especially like in Chestnut Ridge, they see them going into the mountains. Um, and that leads people to think, well, maybe there's government bases down there, which, by the way, there are. It's not even people think there are government bases that are built in the mountains. They're just like NORAD in, in Colorado. But um, it leads people to think that maybe these are just government crafts and... Um, that they are based in there, that they're kind of going out and experimenting, flying around and then flying them back in, which might be the case. Or the other case is that the government builds bunkers and stuff there because they know that there's civilizations down there that they're working with. And then like over at Skinwalker Ranch, um, that's there has always been a ton of ideas and stories and even documentation 
of big government bases being built out in the desert. And it's like with uh, Phil Schneider, who ended up dying after going public with this stuff because he worked on these programs, that we go out in the desert and we blast down and build these huge underground bunkers and that there's another species living down below us. Um, and he claims to have killed some of them and then was on the run for the rest of his life until they killed him. He's a pretty interesting story that we'll dive into at some point. But when you look at a map of the cave systems all around the country, a lot of, if not all, Bigfoot sightings, UFO sightings, uh, Thunderbird sightings, and all of them kind of match up with where these big cave systems are. So I like the idea that there's a world underneath our feet and sometimes um, there's a little bit of crossover. Now that doesn't necessarily explain the like portals opening up and closing, but it might if these things down there are very technologically advanced. If they're very technologically advanced, I mean, we're getting into quantum tunneling and we're getting into quantum entanglement and being able to teleport things and stuff. So it might just be technology that we don't recognize that seems very magical to us at the time. That's that's all magic is, right? It's technology that hasn't been figured out yet. And again, that also doesn't, uh, that just accounts for the ones that are on the land. The ones that are on the water, like the Bermuda Triangle and the Lake Michigan Triangle, um, you know, obviously things aren't coming up from the ground there. Although then you have USOs, which are unidentified submerged, submerged objects that uh, do come up out of the ocean uh, and look like UFOs. And we even have people like Christopher Columbus writing about flames of light dancing on the ocean and going in and out of the water. So that's been seen for a very long time. So maybe at some point before the earth looked the way it did, there was big civilizations there and they might still kind of be there under the ground or even under the water. So um, again, I'm going to, I'm going to do an episode about ancient civilizations that predate our timeline of human history. And I'll do an episode about hollow earth and how it all ties together at some point. So I'll, I'll jump farther into that. But that could be an explanation of what's going on here. Or it could be all the above, which probably makes the most sense. That some of it is fake, because it's never going to be 100% real. Um, some of it maybe is Native American curses. And some of it is these ley lines that match up and kind of create loose areas in our reality. And then some of it is these cave systems where these things come out of. So... You know, you could you can kind of plot all these together, but it's very interesting that we have places that have these pockets, these hot spots, and places that don't. You know, you have some areas where nobody ever sees anything, and then you have some areas where everybody sees something, whether it's all the exact same thing or it's even more interesting in cases like this where they all kind of see a little bit of everything. So it's just like reality's kind of bent there. But anyway, yeah, that's my speech for today. Um, <laughs> I know I kind of ran through it. Like I said, I just pumped a lot of this out of the top of my head because I, I've known about a lot of these things for a very long time. But uh, I had a family emergency, so I wasn't able to really prepare an episode as much as I usually do. So I thought it'd be a good idea just to kind of give an overview of, of paranormal hotspots like this so that then I can do... Uh, episodes later on about each of these individual cases and you guys will kind of have a little bit of a of a base of what's going on so i hope you enjoyed today i hope i didn't uh, go too crazy taking tangents and rambling on too much 
Um, if you have any questions or have any advice or like my show or don't like my show or want to reach out to me for any reason, you can always go on to stolenreality.com underneath the contact page and get a hold of me. I have my uh, Instagram and TikTok up now at Stolen Reality Podcast on both of those platforms that you can follow. I tried to start a Facebook one. It just looked like shit, so I didn't <laughs> didn't follow through all the way with it, but I'll I'll continue that at some point and let you guys know when it happens. And I got a lot of really interesting guests coming up. I got a, a backlog of guests that I'm going to be interviewing here from all different areas. Um, I'm not doing it quite yet because I want to get better equipment first before I do, uh, just so it, it sounds better. You know, as I'm sure you guys can tell from some of these episodes, sound quality and the editing still isn't quite the best. I'm doing my best at it. I'm still only a month and a half into this, so got a long ways to go. Got a lot to learn. Um, about audio editing. I've never edited audio in my life until a couple weeks ago, so trying to make it sound better, but I I do need some better microphones and some better and some better audio equipment so that I can uh, sound more professional when I have my guests. So I'm kind of kind of holding off on them, but I got some really interesting people to be talking to here in the near future. So be looking forward to that and I will be back on Friday for a bit episode. We're going to talk about cause and effect in a non-linear timeline and what that might mean. And then from there, back for the what a week on Saturday and right back into the same old routine. So there will be a Q&A at the bottom of this episode, like always, on the Spotify platform. You can tell me what you think about it or just reach on out to me, and I'd love to hear from you guys. Hope you're having a great week. You'll be hearing from me soon.